next couple Lord's Days, I'd like to address the issue of the regulative principle of worship. <clears throat> Focusing our attention, laying some foundations today from the Old Testament. Next Lord's Day, I'm moving more into the New Testament. Very simple outline that uh, I would give to you as we begin. Three points. First point simply is I want to ask two questions. Second point, I want to answer the two questions. And thirdly, to give biblical warrant from the Old Testament for the answer to those two questions. Two essential questions concerning worship have been debated for hundreds of years by churches. The first question asks, how is God to be worshipped? That is, what is the proper and acceptable way to worship God? Even kings of the earth have their protocol as to the manner in which they are to be approached. In the ancient world, to violate that protocol could actually jeopardize one's life. For example, one appearing in the court of King Ahasuerus, you'll remember in the book of Esther, could literally lose his life if he failed to follow the acceptable protocol. Is it then strange to consider that if earthly kings who rule by God's authority and are his ministers of justice, demand such honor that the king of kings himself should be treated with even less honor? For he too, dear ones, has a protocol, a divine protocol, if you will, as to how he must be approached and worshipped by his people. That's the first question. What's the proper and acceptable way to worship God? That second question that churches have debated for hundreds of years is this. What are the limits of authority possessed by church officers in imposing liturgical forms of worship on members of a church? How far can church officers go in imposing Worship, various forms of worship upon the people of God. Let me illustrate for you the importance of these questions. Today we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And this is a glorious means of God's grace. And it's a privilege to be able to partake of the Lord's Supper. But just suppose that, I may have used this little example before, but just suppose in preparation for the Lord's Supper, I were to distribute to you some, some pens. And I asked you just before we partook of the Lord's Supper to take these straight pens and prick your finger so as to be able to identify to some degree to remind you of the suffering that Christ went through on your behalf. Is that acceptable worship? The first question. The second question, do I, as a minister of Christ, as an officer of the church of Jesus Christ, have the right to impose that? Well, what then if uh, beyond that I say, I'd like for you to, uh, before you receive the Lord's Supper, I'd like for you to come forward and simply kneel before the elements to show your respect, your reverence for the fact that Jesus Christ died in your place. <clears throat> Thus, the question not only becomes 
What is acceptable in the form of worship? What does God require? But the question now becomes, do church officers have the authority to exclude members of their congregation who are in good standing from any of the ordinances of the Lord? Because if I were to say to you, in order to prepare yourself rightly, you need to prick your finger or, or kneel before the elements. And if you are a man, a woman, a child of conscience, you would not be able to do so. And you would be excluded from this means of grace. You would not be able to participate. Do I have the right to impose that upon you? Obviously not. But dear ones, the, the sad situation, I believe, in the time in which we live is this, that so many church officers, and many of them unwittingly, do exactly that. And in so doing, they actually abuse their authority by admitting any man-made innovation into the worship of God. And at that point, when they bring into the worship of God man-made inventions and innovations, they will exclude men, women, and children of conscience from participating in the ordinances of God. On May 19, 1662, a bill was adopted by Parliament entitled The Act for Uniformity in the Prayers and Ceremonies of the Church of England. This piece of legislation required all ministers to follow the liturgical forms of worship, such as prayers and ceremonies, that were found in the Book of Common Prayer. Nearly 2,000 faithful ministers were expelled from the Church of England, among whom was John Owen, and wrote a discourse concerning liturgies and their imposition. They were expelled for refusing to allow any man-made religious act, gesture, or ceremony to bind their consciences or to bind the consciences of their flock. Those were true shepherds of Jesus Christ. And dear ones, we who are ministers or elders of Christ today fall into the same error as the Parliament of England whenever we introduce into the worship of God any religious ceremony or gesture that is not authorized by the Word of God. We're imposing that man-made form of worship on people. And if people refuse to participate as they should, at that point they have been excluded from worship by our seeking to lord it over their consciences. We have denied them of their true Christian liberty. Well, those are the two questions. How should we approach God? And what limits are there to our authority to impose these forms of worship upon God's people. Now, the answer. The single answer to both of these questions is simply this. It's found in the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship, which we will in just a few moments define more clearly, this biblical God-ordained law 
for worship. Both ensures, dear ones, that your worship will be a sweet-smelling fragrance to God through the work of Christ. And the regulative principle of worship also ensures that no one will be seeking to lord it over your conscience by imposing human tradition into worship. For God alone is Lord of the conscience. Now, I can hear, not necessarily from you, dear ones, but uh, from, from uh, others, perhaps uh, an objection. A law for worship? That sounds rather legalistic. I think we should be free in our worship of God. We should be led by the Spirit, not by laws, not by commandments. Well, that person or that church that follows that rule has established his or their own law for worship as much as the one which we have already cited, namely the regulative principle of worship. They have their own law. That is, they have, in effect, said that we will be led by the law of the Spirit, which, in effect, boils down to doing what is right in our own eyes. If we're not going to be guided by the Word of God, that leaves us to our own devices. So you see, dear ones, it's not a question of whether there should be standards or rules for worship. The question is simply this, whose standards or whose rules should always be followed in worship? God's or man's? The regulative principle of worship declares that only the Spirit of God speaking in His Holy Word can give us the acceptable way in which God is to be worshipped. Let me now give to you a definition and I'm going to go to the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 21 Section 1, where I believe there is summarized for us a very adequate and acceptable definition for the way in which we are to worship God. There it says, But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. If it's not, dear ones, prescribed and authorized in Scripture, the regulative principle of worship says that it is forbidden. Now, there is an alternative, another way that many churches determine what they should practice and how they should worship God. That goes something like this. What Scripture does not forbid is permitted. And we find that particular principle being followed historically and even in the present by the Romish church, Anglican churches, Lutheran churches, broadly evangelical churches, and sadly to say, many Reformed churches today. In other words, the regulative principle, dear ones, teaches that every religious act or symbol in the worship of God must pass, pass through the screen 
through the grid of God's holy word and find authorization and prescription in God's word before it is to be enacted and used in the worship of God. We do not have the authority to do so as elders, to bind your consciences in that manner, nor do you have the authority to obey such an unlawful ordinance. Now, as we consider the regulative principle of worship and the form of that prescription in the scriptures that, that is taken, there are three ways in which God can authorize and prescribe what we are to do in worship. He can prescribe it by command, express command, by authorized example, for example, of the apostles or Christ himself, or by good and necessary inference. Let me illustrate. I think that the, the divine warrant that's established by express command is plain and simple enough. God says through the Apostle Paul, preach the word in 2 Timothy 4.2. Preaching from the scripture is a commanded element of worship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, this do, a command, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Express command. Certainly no doubt that we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's not an option. It is a commandment from God. It is an element of our worship. However, when we move to the next way in which God prescribes his will for worship, that by authorized example or practice, we need to understand that authorized example or practice is just as binding upon ministers and upon God's people as the express commandment of God. It requires our obedience. For example, there's no explicit command for New Covenant believers to gather to worship God on the first day of the week rather than on the seventh day of the week. There's no express commandment that you will find in the New Testament. Well, why do we do so? Well, we search the Scripture and we see that God makes it abundantly clear to us by authorized example that since Christ was raised on the first day of the week, that since his apostles gathered for worship on the first day of the week in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29, and since the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church on the first day of the week as they were gathered to worship in Acts chapter 2, and since it was the practice of the apostolic churches to meet for worship on the first day of the week, according to Acts 20, verse 7, where it says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, we rightfully therefore conclude the word of God requires and prescribes worship on a first day Sabbath, rather than on a seventh-day Sabbath for all New Covenant believers. Well, what about the third way which God can prescribe worship of himself from the Scriptures? That by good and necessary inference. Well, let me also say in regard to that, that good and necessary inference as well is as binding upon our consciences as is an express commandment. But good and necessary consequence or inference is going to require some real support from the scripture. 
It's going to be needed to be made more clear and plain to us. Well, think about this. There's no explicit command in the Word of God uh, or in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, nor is there an authorized example in the New Covenant for the baptism of infants. No express commandment, no authorized example specifically stated. Why do we do so? Well, we do so because of good and necessary inference from both the Old and the New Testament. We conclude that God requires all New Covenant believing parents to bring their infant children to Christ in order to have the covenant sign of water baptism placed upon their heads. And we make such good and necessary inferences from these plus many more inferences, but let me just list four or five. God's covenant with Abraham. From the covenant sign of circumcision in the Old Testament. From the continuity of God's covenant with Abraham into the new covenant. Because we see that we are children of Abraham. If we believe in the seed of Abraham, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And we become heirs of the promises of Abraham. We also conclude this from the necessary inference of the way in which children of believing parents are addressed in the new covenant. They are called holy in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord Jesus in Luke 18, 16 says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And he was speaking of an infant that he was blessing. And we conclude from the good and necessary inference from the fact that the whole, that whole households were baptized in the new covenant. Lydia in Acts 16.15 in her whole household and the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.33 in his household. And so based on those three means, express commandments, Authorized examples and good and necessary inference, we conclude what God requires us to use in worship. Now, before I pass on to the, to the biblical evidence, let me simply give to you a caveat. Let me give to you a word of caution at this point <clears throat> if all churches were today the Lord's Day um, February the 5th 1995 if they were today to affirm with us the regulative principle of worship there would still not be absolute uniformity of practice in worship by next Lord's Day, December, or February the 12th, 1995. There would no doubt be a much greater degree of uniformity than there is now, but not necessarily perfect agreement. Why? Because the regulative principle of worship establishes that Scripture alone can authorize what is acceptable worship. However, the faithful, painstaking work of biblical exegesis must tell us what the Scripture declares. And it is possible, due to our own sin and our own ignorance, to honestly disagree as to what the Scripture actually declares 
though holding firmly to the regulative principle of worship. You need to understand that. That just because there are ministers and churches, and I'm not talking about those who simply give lip service to the regulative principle, but I'm saying that there are legitimately out there ministers and believers who adhere to the regulative principle of worship and we may not come exactly to the same conclusions on every single detail. For example, does Scripture require the receiving of tithes during the worship service? I certainly know people who I'm convinced adhere to the regulative principle of worship that receive an offering and tithes during the worship service, and some do not. Or does Scripture require a common cup for the Lord's Supper? Those adhering to the regulative principle certainly differ over that one. Or does Scripture require communicants in the Lord's Supper to be seated around a table when partaking? Honest and faithful advocates of the regulative principle have disagreed on issues such as those just mentioned and even more. My point is simply this. Those who are firmly and honestly committed to the regulative principle, and again, not those who simply give lip service to it, those who are committed to it must graciously continue to challenge one another with scriptural insights concerning worship. Because there is no perfect church. And as pure as we, at this point, may believe our worship is, we have much room to grow. And it would be presumptuous for us to think we didn't. We must be continually reforming in our knowledge of the truth in the area of worship and practice, conforming ourselves ever so much to the Word of God. You see, dear ones, the easy way, that is, the most simple way to deal with these difficult issues of worship would be to follow the principle that what is not specifically forbidden in Scripture is permitted. That would be far more easy, a far more simple principle to follow. But, dear ones, that principle allows for much human invention in worship. That principle is pleasing. Believe me, I've been there. It's pleasing to human resourcefulness. It's pleasing to the senses of man, to the sight and the smell and the hearing. It's pleasing to the emotions and to the will of man. But the regulative principle of worship whatever is not positively authorized by Scripture is forbidden, that principle requires that a man take up his cross, deny himself, crucify himself, and follow Christ. Because it's not easy. Our flesh bucks it. People of God... The regulative principle does not have as its end the pleasure of men. But it has as its end the pleasure of God Almighty. The regulative principle, dear ones, is not followed by us because it simplifies matters or makes our job easier. It's followed rather because it is biblical and brings pleasure to God. The third point in the sermon is this. What's the biblical warrant in the Old Testament? And I will not have time to, uh, to finish that 
today. So we'll continue and get into next Lord's Day, the, the remainder of the Old Testament warrant and into the New Testament warrant as well. But having tried to lay some, uh, some foundations today, we'll just consider two passages. And a very familiar passage to begin with, one which we've been recently spending a lot of time in, back to the second commandment, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Beloved, not only does God forbid the use of images in worship in the second commandment, not only does God forbid the making and representing of any of the three persons of the Godhead by means of images in the second commandment, but in the second commandment, God forbids the religious making or using of any man-made action, gesture, or ceremony in his worship. Question 109 of the larger catechism, and I think I have it written out, asks this, what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? And the answer given begins in this way, the sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, that's where church officers are hit particularly hard. Commanding, using, and any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. Devising, counseling, commanding, using any religious worship, not instituted by God himself. Well, again, one might say, how in the world did all of that come out of the command that forbids the making of a graven image for worship? How did all of those words about any human innovation, an act, a gesture, a ceremony, how did that come out of a commandment that simply forbids the making of a graven image? Well, that's a legitimate question. Well, in the same way that unlawful anger, according to Christ in Matthew 6, breaks the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Because unlawful anger leads to murder. And in the same way that looking upon a woman to lust for her breaks the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery because it leads to the actual act of adultery, according to Christ. You see, dear ones, God is saying in the second commandment that when man brings what he has made, whether actions, gestures, ceremonies, various forms of worship into the worship of God. He makes a kind of image. And indeed, if those man-made religious actions, gestures, and ceremonies are not repented of, if they're not forsaken, they inevitably in time will lead to the actual use of images in worship. Ministers or elders may even have good intentions in introducing such man-made innovations into the worship service. No one's faulting necessarily their, their motivation or their intentions. It's been said, for example, to use images is to teach the illiterate by means of visual aids. Those who cannot read 
the Bible because they can't, because they're illiterate, to use images so as to teach them, or to to make worship another uh, uh, motivation or a, a good intention that uh, has been given is to make worship more meaningful to people by involving more of their physical senses in the worship of God. Well, we know that uh, studies have been done. The more senses that you involve in learning, that uh, uh, studies have shown that uh, the more a person learns. Simply auditory, not as much as if you incorporate visual. And then if you incorporate smell and if you incorporate other senses as well, it only heightens. Well, people say, well, I want my people to learn. And so it appears to be a very sound reason or motivation. But God declares, dear ones, trust not in yourselves. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. Sincerity and good intentions will line the paths to hell. All man-made images, dear ones, or innovations into worship. I, I really want to impress this upon you. Listen closely. All man-made images or innovations into worship are silent. They're like deaf and dumb images or idols. They simply reflect back to us what we want them to say. Anything you introduce into worship is like an image that can't speak and can't hear, and it simply is a reflection of what you want it to say, not what God says to you. Because when God speaks to you, He speaks through His infallible Word, and His Word is living. It's alive. It's powerful. And that's why we're obligated to incorporate the Word of God into our singing, into our preaching, into our praying. We are to be filled with the Word of God when we worship Him. That's what He's given to us. We offer that back to Him. Psalm 115.8 says, Those who make them, that is, images, are like them. They're simply a reflection of themselves. They're images. The second passage, very quickly, is the one that was read earlier in Leviticus. And I simply want you to focus on verses 1 through 3 of chapter 10. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3, where we find the, the Lord slaying Nadab and Abihu. Now, as I read the text, I hope you noted that this was a wonderful time of blessing in which the glory of the Lord was to appear to his people. It had to do with the priestly ministry beginning at that particular point in time. Sanctifying and setting apart the ministers for the service of God and the people of God themselves to worship Him. And in the midst of all of this very clearly prescribed ceremony, because it says very clearly in verse 16, according to the prescribed manner, this was authorized, every detail of it, by God. In the midst of all of this, Aaron lifts his hand toward the people and blesses them. Moses and Aaron, in verse 23, go into the tabernacle of meeting and they come out and they bless the Lord. And then it says, the glory of the Lord appears to all the people. 
And if that were not enough, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the offering that's on the altar before their very eyes. And when all the people, last verse in chapter 9, when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, I read this passage. I don't read a chapter division at this particular point that follows straight into chapter 10. That's what's occurred. Then, it says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord, devoured them, and they died before the Lord. I submit to you that what occurred here was in their excitement, Nadab and Abihu did something that was not expressly commanded by God. Not with, I don't read it at least, not with wicked or evil intentions. But in their, the emotion of the moment, they do something that God has not prescribed and authorized. They offer fire. According to Leviticus 16.12, the fire was to be taken from the altar of burnt offering. And that was to be filled. The, the shovel or the coals from the, from the altar were put upon a shovel or a pan and brought into the tabernacle, placed upon the tabernacle or the altar of incense, and then the incense was placed upon the coals. And the fragrance and aroma from the incense filled the holy place. But in their excitement, in their haste, in spite or in, in light of all that God had just done, they obtained the fire from another source, apparently. They fill their censers and they offer strange fire to the Lord. And what happens? They are immediately smitten by God, slain before the Lord. Very clearly says, dear ones, in verse 1, and offered profane fire before the Lord, notice, which he had not commanded them. It does not say which he had forbidden them, but which he had not expressly commanded them. God did not necessarily prohibit and forbid the using of the strange fire. He did not expressly forbid that. But what he did do was command them what fire they were to use. And when they violated that command and went beyond that command to add to God's command in worship as a minister of the living God, they were slain in his presence. They took liberties in worship that they had no right or authority to do, and they were slain. The objection comes, but God has obviously relaxed his standards now, for he doesn't slay people on the spot for taking liberties in worship today. Why be so nitpicky then today? Well, I would have you remember, dear ones, that neither does God immediately slay those necessarily who lie to him, though he did so to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. And yet, does anyone want to argue that lying to God is as heinous to God now as it was to him in Acts 5? Would anyone dare argue that it's less heinous to God now than it was in Acts 5? 
Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing, listen carefully, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? The fact that God does not immediately slay us now is no indication of his disapproval of any man-made invention that we bring into worship. It's an indication of his patience with us. And that patience of God should lead us to repentance. Not make us secure in our sin. And I, again, would admonish you, dear ones, never treat God's forbearance of your sin as an indication of his approval. It is always God's objective word and not my subjective feelings that assure me of God's approval. Did you hear what I said? It is always God's objective word and not my subjective feelings that assure me of my approval before God. Dear ones, grasp that truth. And you're on your way to living, not only an obedient, but experiencing a victorious Christian life. But another objection may be offered. You're just interested in the externals of worship. The right form for worship. What about the heart? Well, dear ones, true worship is not just interested in forms. That's true. It's not just interested in externals. True worship must be concerned with worshiping God in spirit and truth. Just as true love is evidenced in not only inward words or external deeds, nor is faith evidenced, true faith evidenced only by our inward convictions, but also by our outward deeds. So true worship is demonstrated in both spirit and in form. And I would offer this for you to consider. We are as guilty of man-made worship and violating the second commandment if we worship using the right forms, but worship using empty, vain forms devoid of love, adoration, praise, and the fear of God. We're as guilty. And finally, true worship. Even when we worship God in spirit, inwardly, and in truth, outwardly following all the right forms. True worship is only and always acceptable before God on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. It's only because He presents my worship before God that any of my worship is acceptable to God. It's only because of his righteousness. Only and always, dear ones. During the bloody reign of Mary, Queen of England, brave and courageous men, women, and children were burned at the stake because they refused to bow before the popish ceremonies like the Mass. They refused to do so. They refused to submit their conscience to the lordship of an earthly magistrate. To those faithful martyrs, this truth was most precious. God alone is Lord of the conscience. It's not any man-made forms of worship. God alone is Lord of the conscience.
The Lord God says, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. What I command, don't add, do not take away. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.